thank you so much for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium, uh, braving the, the cold front. I mean, I put a jacket on. I was just, you know, just in anticipation. So uh, it's great to see you. I'm really excited to dive in to the book of Acts. We've been in this series called Witnesses, uh, making our way through this great book as we look at the, the storyline of kind of the birth of the New Testament church and how Jesus is the one who is building his church and how Jesus you know, it's his life, death, resurrection, his ascension, and yet he is still ruling and reigning. He's still building his church, and he simply is using us. We're broken, flawed people, but we get the great privilege of partnering together with Jesus through the power of the Spirit to bear witness about the reality of how you can find life change in him. And so as we get into this this morning, I just wanted to say thank you uh, to you guys for being the church. One of the ways, it's not the only way, but one way in particular, in very practical sort of tangible ways this past week that you guys have been bearing witness about the reality of Jesus is giving of, being a generous people to give towards hurricane relief efforts. And so thank you. So many of you brought uh, supplies by the branch this past week. We were able to, through a connection, uh, get this over to a family that had planned on renting one U-Haul truck, and because of your contribution and other people that got word of this, um, saw the video, literally had four trucks departing to go up to Panama City. Um, the gentleman, he was from that area originally, and so knew places to go, heard reports uh, back even of like some great stories. Um, one family in particular had five kids, and they'd been in such a spot, like they didn't have any access to food, they hadn't eaten in several days, and this truck shows up, and they were able to give them supplies, and so perhaps some of the very things that you brought. So thank you for bearing witness to the reality of Jesus. Would you do this though? Continue to, to pray. I think sometimes, I know my tendency can be like, okay, well, we've kind of checked that off. We've done that. Having conversations even as recently as this morning and hearing um, just how devastated the area is. Um, be praying for the churches up there that are having are being forced to meet, not in their buildings, because they've, they've, a lot of them have been destroyed or so damaged they can't meet in there, and yet the church is still gathering. They're finding places to, to meet in and to bear witness and trying to serve, even in the midst of their hardship and their brokenness and their lack of electricity and all that. So continue to be praying and then look for other opportunities. If you've got connections up there, if you know ways that we can continue to partner, please come talk with me or one of the leaders at, at Crosspoint. And so this morning, if you would, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter six. Uh, we go through books of the Bible. We wanna go through this verse by verse. Uh, you don't need to hear my opinions or my thoughts. We need to hear from God and God speaks to us in his word. Maybe you're like, hey, I, you know, some people talk about hearing from, from God and I'm like, I wish I could hear from God. You can, you're here, we have God's word. We get to open that, we get to hear from him this morning. And so if you brought a Bible, turn there. If you didn't, um, there are paperback Bibles in the back tables. You can get up, you can grab one of those. Or if you got a phone with you, you can go to cpwp.life, swipe over, second card should be a thing that says message notes. The text is there, there's space, you can actually click a button to take notes, email it to yourself afterwards. The things that will appear on the screen are there uh, so you can follow along. So if there's a quote or passage, you don't have to feverishly write, it's just, it's there. Or you can access it later as well. But I wanna go ahead and read this. We just got seven verses this morning. So Acts chapter six, verses one to seven. And as I read this, would you go ahead and stand as I read God's word this morning? It says this, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And so it says the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. 
Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5. And, when, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles. And it says they prayed and they laid their hands on them. In verse 7, we get this summary statement. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I want to start out this morning. We've got to look at these first couple of verses that kind of sets the context for what's happening here, and that there is a problem here in the first couple of verses. Um, did you notice the text says, you know, the church, like there's believers that are being added. I mean, verse one says the disciples were increasing in number. And so this is to be celebrated. This is a good thing. If you want to know like, hey, do we care about more people being added to this family, more people meeting Jesus? Yes, we do. All right. Not only here at Cross Point Winter Park, that's why we help plant churches. We want more people to know about Jesus. We want more disciples being made. All right. Sometimes you can get in this, well, do you just care about numbers? No, we don't just care about numbers. We care about people. All right. Um, and so we want to see more people get added. We see here, here as well, like they're actually actually paying attention to how many believers there are because at the end of the day, they want to care for them, disciple them, all of those, those things. And the number is increasing. And so there's this beautiful thing. We've literally seen it go from a handful of people to about 120, and now we've got 15, 20,000 some people that are followers of Jesus. So it's this massive megachurch overnight, okay? Now, if you can imagine, though, like it's hard enough to administrate and to organize and structure any sort of group of people, all right? Like we feel that tension. Maybe you got your, your own family, you're in the workplace, whatever it happens to be. Now think about just thousands upon thousands of people. Like there's some difficulty here. And we're gonna get into the particulars of that in just a moment, but what I wanna put before you and what I'm actually encouraged in that we see right away. Because as I read that text, you notice like there's widows, all right? We're gonna talk about that in the kind of historical context, but there's these group of women that are being neglected. No one is pro-widows being neglected. We're not thinking that's a good thing. Like, this is a problem, all right? And one of the things, though, that I want to call your attention to just as we get into it, and maybe you're new to the Bible, maybe you're like, I don't know if I believe any of this or not. I don't know if I believe Christianity. One of the things I appreciate about the Bible is how brutally honest it is. Like, there's, there's no hiding here. I mean, think about it for a moment. If you were trying to put a story out there to propagate a lie, you're trying to put your best foot forward, and what do we have here? It's like, oh, hey, by the way, amidst all the good things that are happening, there's these widows. They're marginalized. They, they don't have means to care for themselves, and they were being neglected. And not just being neglected, apparently it's, it's even a bit, you know, a bit more problematic. Some were being taken care of, but some weren't part of the dominant culture. And so there's this divide between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So apparently the widows of the Hebrews and that culture and that language were well taken care of, but this other group is neglected. So there's division there, and it's around culture and race and language and all of that. And we don't, I don't find that encouraging, like we celebrate that. What I do find encouraging, though, is even though the early church, there's much to be, that we want to emulate and imitate and celebrate, the reality is, is this, there's brokenness, 
It's impossible to be a perfect church. We're in the sixth chapter here, and already there's problems. And so if you're here this morning, maybe you're coming back to the church after a while, you're hoping, hey, Cross Point Winter Park will be that perfect church. Like, you, no, you just leave right now. Like, it's not, all right? It's a group of flawed people that are seeking to follow Jesus. And we love what God is doing, and yet the reality is we are broken and we are flawed. We're gonna see, I mean, there's complaints. The language here is there's this deep grumbling that's taking place. It goes all the way back to the book of Exodus and where the people are led out of slavery, and it's that same language that's being used, and they're grumbling against. Moses. And so this isn't just like, hey, can I call your attention to this? I'm sorry to bother you. But this is turned into grumbling and this deep-seated sort of complaining and a bitterness of spirit. And the reality is the enemy loves to work in that way. What we see here is that there's these growing pains. So yes and amen to that the church is growing and more people are meeting Jesus. But I also want us to see that throughout the first five chapters, you have a very real enemy that is trying to thwart the advancement of Jesus' church. And so it's been up until this point a lot of external pressure. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know the apostles, they preach, they get arrested, there's miraculous like you know, release from prison, then they go back and preach in the exact same spot. They're arrested again. They are beaten within just inches of their life and they're sent back out. And of course, they're like rejoicing and they're preaching the gospel and the church continues to to grow, but it's this, there's been external pressures and persecution and hardship. And now I think it's shifted. A very real enemy says, okay, what if I can't destroy it from the outside? What if I destroy it from the inside? What if I can get a group of people to turn on one another? What if I can take a very real legitimate issue that needs to be addressed and get it to a point where people are grumbling and complaining and they've lost sight of the joy in Jesus and are working together and they have expectations about like, hey, these leaders that God has appointed, like they need to do everything and be everything. And yeah, we've got Jesus as the Messiah, but we also are gonna appoint these other people to basically be our Messiah. Like there's this tension here. And if it doesn't get resolved, I don't think you and I are here this morning. Like if this doesn't get taken care of, the reality is like it could get destroyed. It's still, though it's large in number, it's still very fragile. And by God's grace, we see things beginning to be addressed. And so the issue that we see here, just so we understand, as they put this plan in place that we'll look at in a moment, is there are widows that are being neglected. And the particulars might be different in our cultural context, though we certainly are called to take care of widows and orphans. We'll talk more of that in a moment as well. But what you have here, when it says the Hellenists, these were Jewish women who find themselves as widows. And in that cultural context, here's the reality. Your family was who would take care of you. So you've raised your kids, you end up losing your husband. You had no means in that, if you're a woman, you have no means in that kind of culture to provide for yourself. You were 100% reliant upon the generosity of your kids, your extended family, this, this really this strong network. And so here's one thing that we know. If they're having to rely on the church, what does this mean? It means that so many of them, their family has cut them off. Their family has said, hey, we're, we're Jewish. Like, you've embraced Jesus. That's a whole new thing. We don't even know what to do with that, how to categorize it, but we are cutting you off. And so now it's the church's responsibility to say, hey, you haven't lost, like you might have lost that family, but you're in this family now. And so there's this beautiful picture of people coming together and taking care of one another. And yet, 
even amongst that family, you have some that are more part of the Hellenists, which is the, the Greek culture, some that maybe had lived away from Palestine, away from Jerusalem, that had come back, all right? And so they were influenced by that Greek kind of dominant culture. And then you have those that grew up more in that particular region and in and around Jerusalem, and they are there, and they are speaking probably Aramaic, and they are part of the dominant culture in and around Palestine. And there's this divide here. And come to find out, those that are the Hellenist widows, they find themselves being neglected. And whether this was intentional or not, I mean, the text doesn't tell us a whole lot. My guess is it wasn't an intentional thing, but I think just the sheer volume of people and the, the things that were vying for the apostles' time and attention, all that they had to do, there was this thing that was, there's the group of people, these group of widows that were being neglected. And did you notice, though, the apostles' response. It's here in verse two. It says, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. At first glance, I think this could appear harsh, right? Like, whoa, wait, wait a minute. Like, you're just into preaching? You, you're, you're, too, you know, you're too good to, to help a widow out? I mean, doesn't it kind of read that way at, at first? But I don't believe that's what's going on at all. This is the apostles recognizing their humanity. They're embracing their humanity, which means they're embracing their limitations. Like they're seeking to not have a Messiah complex. They're like, listen, there are all these things and it's way too much for us to try and take care of on our own. Like we up until this point, like we've been preaching the, the word and we've been praying for people and healing the sick and seeing more disciples get made and we've been taking care of some of these very practical needs of, of the widows and those that are suffering in other ways. Like we've been trying to do that. We've been trying to administrate that. But the reality is like, my goodness, like we can't keep up. There's a whole group that's been neglected and that breaks our heart, but we just simply, we can't do it. They're like, we can't trade off preaching the word to go and do this. Not because serving tables doesn't matter, because it does. But because they recognize they're limited. And so for one, just be encouraged in that. Listen, like we all have a unique role to play. And it's not a matter of one thing being better than the other. I love the way John Stott put it in his commentary on Acts. He says, there is no hint whatever that the apostles regarded social work as inferior to pastoral work or beneath their dignity. It was entirely a question of calling. They had no liberty to be distracted from their own priority task. Different roles. We'll look at this more in a moment as well amongst the body. But this is, not the disciples, this is not the apostles being like, oh, we're too good for that. Like, get somebody else to do that. That's beneath us. No, they've actually been doing some of this, but they're realizing in order for this thing to continue to grow and to flourish, like we need everybody playing their part. We need to appoint new leadership. We need to be able to organize this thing a bit. And so even for me, I just know, I, I'm so grateful. I look, I mean, even this morning, just observing like all the various people that are serving to make this service happen. And this is just what we do on Sunday. The church is more than just Sunday. And so we spread out throughout the week and there are people serving out in the community. There are people that are organizing drives. There are people that are leading community groups and leading men's ministry and women's ministry and people opening up their homes and people giving help and benevolence and coaching people and giving financial you know, advice. I mean, there's all kinds of beautiful things happening. And I look back, and I know for me there's been this struggle even over the years, because when the first church first got started, to be honest, like even just thinking Sunday morning, like I'd go and I'd go get the trailer, and I would attempt to not kill anyone on the way over, right? Um, and, and bringing that thing in, in here and, and helping with setup and like get up, like just doused in just sweat, like all right, open up your Bible, like here we go. 
Um, and it was honestly, it was very difficult for me, partly probably because of control freak nature, all right? So there's probably part of that, as well as I didn't want things to look like, well, I'm, I'm too good for that. Like, no, I'll do this, shoulder to shoulder, let, let's do that. And there were some brothers that cared for me yet enough to say, listen, like, let us run with that. Because sometimes I think we have this posture of like just thinking, like, well, what will other people think? And there was this moment of freedom, like, okay, I don't need to prove, like, I, God's given me the, this particular role, all right? And I, I'm going to help in the ways that, that I can help. And some of the things, like, honestly, that I was doing, like, I just need to get out of the way because it's run way better when I just step aside, okay? I think you see some of these dynamics that are at play now. In no way, don't read this as like, oh, well, Jamie views himself as apostle. That's, no, no, or that's not it, all right? But when we just think kind of just overall, what are some principles here that we have different roles to play. So let's look at this plan then. Verses three to six, it tells us about the plan. I wanna look at, I think there, there's probably more, but five things this morning about what this plan can actually teach us. So let me just read it one more time so it's fresh in our minds and then we'll, we'll talk about some of these things. So they say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and what they said, it pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles. It says they prayed and they laid their hands on them. So let's look at this for a moment. Let's ask ourselves, okay, what does this plan that they put in place, like how does that inform, how does that instruct us? Like what might that, what might be some of the takeaways for us? All right, because this is a historical record of what happened, and it's true because it happened, certainly. But also, there's these truths here that we can say, oh, what does this look like in our time and in our place, and what can we learn from this? And so I think there's kind of five lessons that I see in these verses, all right? And we'll, we'll start with, with this. I've kind of alluded to it already, but um, let's make sure we don't think this, all right? Structural system structures are not unspiritual, all right? Well, let's just start there. Like, the church had an administrative problem. They had to figure something out, all right? This is not 100% true across the board, but I'm gonna use a, kind of a sweeping generalization that implicates me, all right? Those that sometimes give their life to proclamation of the word are not the best at administrative organization, details, systems, and structures. Some of you are nodding your head, you're like, yeah, we, we, we know that, it's been very clear, okay? Um, but the reality is these things need to be taken care of and they're not simply something that is like, ah, like somebody's gotta do that but it really doesn't matter but just can somebody just, you know, just go take care of the thing. No, no. There's a beauty in how God has designed things in order to function and to flourish and so if there's any part of you that thinks even, oh, we're talking church structures and systems that somehow that is unspiritual, all right, or unscriptural, like it, it's just, it's not true. Now, if you're all into structures and systems and there's no proclamation of the word and there's no prayer and there's no worship of God, like, well, yes, then we've missed the mark. But what we see here is an organization of this new church. So it reminds me of this. I'll, I'll read these verses. Maybe you're familiar with this story. In the book of Exodus, you've got Moses. He's this appointed leader. He's got a role to play, all right? He's the one that's gone before Pharaoh, even as one who apparently struggles with public speaking. He says, Pharaoh, you gotta let God's people go. He's leading this, this charge. And what we find kind of about the midway point of the book of Exodus is Moses is completely overwhelmed because he's got thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And anytime you get a group of people, so think about this. Maybe you've taken a road trip, 
all right, with a few friends or some extended you know, family, and you're just trying to coordinate that work. Maybe, maybe you're talking 12, 15 people. You've got two or three vehicles in the mix. Where are we gonna stop? They gotta use the bathroom again. Like, what is happening? We're never gonna get there. Like, all kinds of different personalities in the mix, all right? And like, by the time you arrive at your destination, you're like, this is the most terrible trip ever. Like, maybe that's your mindset. Now, just hypothetically speaking, now you think about this. You've got tens of thousands of people on a massive road trip out of Egypt through the wilderness to get to the promised land. What do you imagine? There's grumbling, there's complaining, this person said this, they, you know, they stole this out of my tent, they did whatever it happen, happens to be. And so Moses is like, well, somebody's gotta care for these people. And so he's literally, he just sets up shop pretty much every moment of every day and people just come to him. They stand in line for hours on end. It's like, the DMV, but a thousand times worse, all right? And they're just over and over and over again. And then Moses' father-in-law shows up, all right? And because Moses is a good son-in-law, he's like, well, I, at least I gotta listen to this guy, right? And so here's what he says. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, well, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to them, and I love this, all right? I don't think he struggled with being direct. What you are doing is not good, all right? My little son-in-law, all right, this is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. And we jump to verse 21. Moreover, look then for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, that they hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. He's like, you gotta organize this thing, man. Like you're literally, not only gonna wear yourself out, you're gonna, you're gonna wear the people out. Like you're never gonna get to the promised land. You're gonna die here just worn out and bitter and frustrated. Like you're in a worse place if you keep doing this than you would've been had you stayed in Egypt. And so there's just this very practical, but I want you to see this. This is a gift. Moses' father-in-law to come and to say, this is how it needs to be set up and organized. It's not because he doesn't like the scriptures. It's not because he's somehow like unspiritual. He's like, no, like I want more people, all right, connected to this movement. But the reality is like this thing's just gonna implode if you don't take care of this. Some of the language we use here at Crossman, if you begin around long, if you begin to hear this, it's helpful to think about this as the trellis and the vine. The vine, we wanna see gospel growth, all right? And so got this took this picture last night, this is in our backyard, um, and so you can kind of see some of the, the pieces of this rickety trellis a bit, and what is, what is happening? The, the vine is beginning to grow, and at certain times of the year it'll flower, and it's beautiful, and it smells amazing, and all of that, but without that trellis there, the vine doesn't know where to actually go, how to climb, where to, to do all that stuff, and so it helps. Now, I don't ever take anybody outside and say, oh, you just gotta look at the trellis. It's just beautiful, right? Um, it, there, it could be cool, all right? But it's ultimately, it's there to serve a purpose for the growth of the vine. And so when we see these things, at the end of the day, what is happening in Acts 6 is like, hey, we gotta put some structure to this. But it's all in kind of subservience to this, I would say, that there is a priority of word in prayer. So it's why the apostles said, like, hey, we can't neglect this. It's their calling, and they realize that the only way the church 
is going to be healthy and to flourish is, yes, it needs the structures, but it also needs the proclamation of the word. And so they say, brothers, like we can't give that up. Verse four, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, that this has to be a priority. Now, one of the practical takeaways I think we need to see in this, I think there's, a, there's an application for those that get up in a service on a Sunday, they're on the stage, they got the headset microphone, right? Like, and they're proclaiming God's word. So I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but I also think there's this priority of the word and of prayer in every believer's life. Like what people need from you ultimately is not just good advice, though I hope you have some good advice to give you. They need good news. They need to hear that something historically has happened and it can change everything if they will submit to King Jesus. That Jesus died for their sins in their place, took the wrath of God upon himself so that they, as a person that would stand condemned apart from that, could actually have Jesus' righteousness that got credited to us when we believe because Jesus resurrected three days later that there's an empty tomb. Like people need to hear that that has actually taken place. And so there's a priority of the word and of prayer. Are we pressing into this? I'm so encouraged to see some of the even just newer initiatives for us as a church, the training that's happening this afternoon. These are all, they're not the be all end all, but there's this emphasis like we need God. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We Come to God desperate, saying, God, we need you to work. We can't change anybody's hearts. We're not, we can have good arguments and stories and be winsome and all of that. And yet at the end of the day, there's an offense to the gospel that says you can't make it without Jesus. And that can be a stumbling block for some. And so we pray like crazy, God, would you see fit to save some? N.T. Wright in his commentary in the book of Acts talks about it this way. And this is particularly convicting for me, as he's talking about even the tendency amongst those that part of their role is to preach and to proclaim God's, God's word in a gathered setting. He said, the temptation for leaders in the movement from the earliest days until now has always been to heave a sigh of relief at being spared the spiritually and mentally demanding task of preaching and teaching, of explaining scripture, of opening up its great narrative and its tiny details, applying it this way and that, enabling people to live within its story and make its energy their own. And I'll be honest, I think this shows up for me as I think word and prayer. By God's grace, I feel a, a great appreciation that I get to actually get up and teach, but I'll be perfectly honest that there are things I will readily give time to um, if I feel like, oh, it's too hard to kind of press into the teaching, and in particular, prayer. Well, maybe I'll respond to that email. Maybe I'll do this. I'll even, I'll even dabble in some systems and structures just so I don't actually have to pray, and that has been very convicting this week. Like, It's not to ignore those things, but is there prayer, this desperation, this dependence in prayer. We rolled out this, this fall kind of how we want to talk about our discipleship strategy. And so if you're new to Crosspoint, even just, and for us, just, this is all, it's new for all of us, is pulpit, chair, table, square. And the first thing there is not that we expect everybody like to have a pulpit and to preach, but we believe that our discipleship strategy starts with this gathering on Sunday and the word of God is proclaimed. And then we, it reverberates. We get to proclaim that to other people. Like I hope today you will preach the gospel in your conversations after the service and it spills out throughout the week. And as you gather in homes, as you meet with people, that you will proclaim the good news of Jesus to one another. Like we have to have a strong proclamation. It's pulpit. And yes, the other aspects of it matter, but it starts and it flows out of that proclamation. Let's not lose sight of it. 
And at the same time, I think the third lesson we see is God absolutely 100% cares about the injustices in the world. He cares about social issues. We can't get away from this. James chapter 1, verse 27 says it this way. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Us caring for the broken and the marginalized, that doesn't earn you the affection of God. But at the same time, one of the tests, and we hear this in the book of James, is like, listen, you want to know if, if you've had an encounter with Jesus, if you're trusting in him, if, you, if you've been saved, like, you're, there, there's this fruit that begins to, to grow. There's, there's manifestations of this where you begin to see, like, oh, I, I care for people that I once maybe didn't care for. And it points you to the fact like God is doing something. And I realize there's a different pacing for that. You might, we're not all gonna be in the same spot there, but we can't ignore this fact. That faith without works, it is actually dead. If, If you don't have any of this in your life, I don't have any of this in my life, the reality is like we have to ask ourselves like do we really even have a vibrant faith? These are indicators like, oh, God's doing something in your life. And there's this calling as the church to care for those that are, that are marginalized, that are going through difficulties and whatever that looks like. And I love that we see that here. The disciples saying we can't go wait on tables is, again, that's not them saying we don't care about this. They're saying we're not the best ones to do it. And we can't neglect this other thing. And so we need people to step into this particular space. And I don't think that means you read the rest of the book of Acts that, that you know, guys like Peter never engaged in anything outside of this proclamation of the word and prayer. No, they, they engaged in other things. But in terms of just where they would lead out of, how they would seek to play their part well, I think you see them saying, hey, other people can help in these areas. And so that leads to this, that I think a fourth lesson that we see is they appoint the right leaders. Look how it's described here. It says, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute. I love this too, that the apostles are looking, they're saying, hey, we're kind of putting the ball back in your court. Like, who are some people that that you've noticed and what you've observed in their life? You see how all the things that are going on, like, will you actually let us know, like, who are people that you appoint? And so they're empowering the the people. They're saying, okay, like, we got to figure this out together. This is not us just in isolation here. And so they say, bring men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint then to the student. So they'll lay hands on them and do that, but like, who do you see? And so even as we think about it as a church, like appoint the right leaders, it's not appoint the perfect leaders. The men that are listed here are not perfect. They are flawed. But I love the emphasis here. Do they have a good reputation, both in the church and outside of the church? I think these are things that we should all aspire to, regardless if you ever have an official leadership role in the church or not. As a follower of Jesus, what is your reputation? Is it winsome? Do people think well of you? Like, do you do you you know do you work your job for the glory of God and for the good of other people? Like, are you are you caring? Are you are you kind? Are you helping shut gossip down? Are you speaking the truth? Do you have integrity? All these things. Do you have a good reputation in the church and outside of the church? And are you spirit filled? Are you following the leading of the Spirit? Are you dependent in prayer? Are you listening to God? And then do you actually have wisdom? Are you seeking to grow in wisdom? 
Are you asking for help? Do you have practical even skills? Like as they set this up, I believe that they had some skills for this. And so they had sort of this cognitive wisdom, you could say, and then they also knew how to like flesh that out. What does it look like in the day-to-day and kind of on the ground? So they point the right leaders. And I think the last thing we'll look at here is this fifth lesson, that the church is a body and everybody has a part to play. I think it's one of the things that we begin to see here because up until this point, you just kind of have the crowds and you have the apostles and we're starting to get more snapshots of like, ah, the church in all its beauty and yes, there's brokenness. The church is beginning to have different people step in and play their part and as it, we're gonna see in the next couple of chapters, as it expands into new regions, there's new people that are gonna get raised up and you're gonna get introduced to men and women that are playing their part for the, for the good, for the glory of God and for the good of other people. It's why Paul would write later on in one of his letters in the book of Romans, he says this in Romans 12, four to eight. He says, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. He says, let us use them. And so he says, if it's prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in their generosity, the one who leads, do it with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is not an exhaustive list. This is not to say like, okay, well, I've got, you know, I've got the acts of mercy, but I don't have to do any other things. But he's saying like, you've been given, you've been gifted in particular ways. You're part of the body. Like you're, you're a member of the body. Do you view yourself that way? If you're a Christian, you have a part to play in the church for the good of the community and for the building up of the, the saints for the church that is here. Some of you know this about, about our family. Um, you've heard, probably heard me tell stories about, um, our, about our dog. Um, our dog, we have a golden retriever named Strider. Um, I was gonna say our four-legged friend, but that's not true anymore because Strider has three legs, okay? Um, and so uh, kind of a long story, he got sick, some cancer in one leg. And so uh, here's a somewhat up-to-date picture of Strider, um, just in case you're wondering. And so, yeah. He still was hiking this summer in North Carolina. Um, he's got the little backpack thing on, little handle there. If he couldn't get through some spots, we just lift him up, right? Uh, which is easier said than done given his weight, but anyway. Um, but you can see there, like, yeah, he's, I mean, he's having a great, grand old time, but he's got three legs, all right? And he has adjusted remarkably well. He is doing great, all of that stuff. But here, at the end of the day, it's not advantageous for him to be missing a leg. Like it would be better for him to have all four. He falls down more than he ever used to. He gets worn out far more quickly than he once did, all right? It's even more hilarious when somebody comes over and now he's running across the wood floors like it's just, it's just a colossal disaster all the time, all right? But I say that, and listen, the, the reality is we think about one body as the church, all right? On the one hand, You neglecting to play your part or not doing it with zeal or enthusiasm or any of us doing that, like, hey, Jesus said he's gonna build this church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. Like, if you don't play your part, it's not like the whole thing's gonna shut down. Like, Jesus is bigger than you and I neglecting to play our part. Well, but get this. But when we play our part, when you have all of the parts functioning, things begin to flourish as God intended them to be. And so, yeah, my dog is adapting, but it is not ideal. He would be flourishing more if he had all four of his legs. And so I want to ask us as the church, like for maybe for some of you, like how do you just need to start? 
Maybe you've been on the sidelines. Maybe you're not in a way that you're practically serving. Like this is not to guilt you and do it. I'm saying like you're missing out on opportunities and we actually, we do need you. We think it will flourish more. Jesus will build his church regardless, but he's inviting you like to play and to participate. So maybe for some of you, it's just like, hey, I've been away from the church for a long, long time and I just need to simply just start plugging back in and just by that, I'm just gonna be here on Sunday. Maybe that's your next step. Kind of the next click on the dial. Great. Maybe you're like, hey, I've been here, but I just, I'm not engaged in, in serving. I love coming in. I appreciate the people that serve. Well, what would it look like for you to engage? Maybe that's a place where like, hey, in what ways might you be neglecting to contribute? Like, we need you. Now, I say all that knowing there are different circumstances. There are seasons of life. I get that there are things you might at one time been able to do something that you no longer can do for various things. Totally fine. This is not any sort of guilt trip in, in that at all. Just telling you, like, we're meant to be part of this body. And maybe for some of you to think about it this way, because here's, here's another area that I, I know I can personally struggle with, and I'm guessing maybe you can as well. You might be able to readily check the box and say, yep, I serve. Yep, I give. I do these things. But it's helpful every now and again to ask, though, are you stagnant in that? Are you going through the motions of, okay, I do this, and I get the email that says to come and serve, and I, I do that, but is your heart in it? Is there a zeal? Is there a cheerfulness in it? When you give of your time, talent, and treasure, like, is there an enthusiasm for that? What might be in there that needs to be repented of? Maybe you show up and you're faithful to do that, and we, that's awesome, but at the same time, have you grown stagnant in it? Maybe there's things the Lord is gonna call you to in this next season of ministry to be able to say like, hey, like you've been serving, but we, uh, you got, there's a leadership role for you to press in. What if, what if there's just ways to simply, maybe not a new role or new title, but you're just, you're gonna, you're gonna step in. You're gonna see where the gaps are. You're gonna seek to fill that. You're gonna help take things further. You wanna see things flourish, both at what we do at a church on a Sunday, but throughout the week. Like there are ways. We don't walk around thinking, oh, this thing is just perfectly humming along. Just don't mess it up. Like we believe that God has more for us and he's gonna use his people, the church. And so ask yourself, do you need to start? Are you stagnant? Now let's, we'll look at this. Here's the last thing. Look at verse seven, how this thing concludes. We get this summary word. It says the word of God continued to increase. The word goes forth because people were playing their part, because the apostles were freed up to do what they were called to do and where other people were stepping in. And again, we're gonna see that doesn't mean that if you're one that has more of a serving the tables sort of role, like Stephen is the guy that's appointed. We're gonna see him next week. He preaches a very long, massive sermon, all right, the, the next week. He's not anti-proclamation. But you do see somebody that's just stepping and saying, hey, I'll serve in this, this way. What role can I play? It says the word of God continued to increase. And it says the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here's the summary, right? People play their parts. People proclaim the word. People are serving. The body is functioning. And it tells us the disciples multiplied. And I love this. Did you notice that last little line in there? Many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That it's not just the irreligious lost that are meeting Jesus, so that's true. It's also the religious lost. I mean, these were the people that were committed to the works of the temple, all of these things, all these rules that they were following. And in the proclamation of God's word, something through, through the power of the Spirit like, gets awakened and they're like, oh, 
I've been doing this, thinking it's in my strength, thinking what I do so that God would accept me. Oh, I'm perfectly accepted through the finished work of Jesus. There isn't anything that I contribute to this other than my sin, and he paid for that. Like, how do I get in on that? And suddenly they're freed up. And my guess is these priests who were used to serving, I bet they began to serve in a whole new way with such zeal and enthusiasm because now they're freed up. They're not trying to prove anything. They're getting to live in glad response to Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. And so you see religious people. And so as a church, what we want to see is, yes, people who are far from God in an irreligious, maybe they're a skeptic, they don't believe any of it, like come to saving faith. And also that there might be a gospel awakening amongst those that are kind of religiously lost. You've been thinking it's up to you. You've been living this sort of legalistic lifestyle, looking down your nose at other people, maybe thinking, well, I do this and I do this and I'm more holy than this person and realize, oh, no, I'm, I'm just as lost. It just manifests itself differently. And so what then, if this is what we want to see, not only for the church back then, but for us, what's the price? What's the cost of this progress? Because can we be honest? There was very real cost. There was a price that was paid in order for these changes. I mean, think about it. How many of us, e- even if you're, you know, you're more entrepreneurial, maybe you think of yourself more flexible, you, you like new things, like at a certain level, though, everybody resists change. We all say we want this, all right? I'm sure there were people that thought, oh yeah, this is a great idea, it's brilliant, until Nicanor showed up at your house, and you're like, wait, where, where's Peter? Peter used to bring me my meal. Peter used to talk to me. Peter used to pray for me. Nicanor, who are you, right? Like, you imagine those things begin to happen. I think the change, it was hard. I don't think we should sugarcoat that. I think there were people that were like, wait, now I'm doing this. Now I'm over here connected with these people. Now this thing's growing. Now I don't know everybody. Is anybody gonna care for me? Like that could be the dominant mindset, that there's a cost. And so if we wanna see the church continue to flourish, there is a cost to be paid. And our motivation for that, because change is hard, and see, even in the midst of growth, there's a difficulty there. But the price of progress, we gotta go back and we'll end with this, Philippians chapter two. You and I can, can sacrifice for the good of others, can give of our time, our talent, our treasure, we can help bear this cost because ultimately, we know the one who is ultimately, who's paid the ultimate price. Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You possess this because of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He willingly lived with open hands. He didn't grasp onto what was rightfully his. And how often do you and I grasp for things that aren't rightfully ours, but we think, I need that, I gotta have that, this person needs to think well of me, I gotta perform, I gotta do all these things, or I gotta get mine. And Jesus lives open-handed, so much so that it says, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in those moments where as the church it is costly and it's sacrificial and it's hard, it's fair to step back and say, this is difficult and Lord, I need your help. And then we also have to press in further and say, at the end of the day though, this sacrifice, this act of kindness, this putting up with this, this having my group be a little bit more chaotic because there's 33 kids now, whatever it happens to be, right? Like in those moments, We look to Jesus and we say, he went to the cross. Like he paid that for us. And suddenly the things that we hold on to, it's gotta be this way, it's gotta look this way. I think we suddenly start getting a bit more open-handed 
We're like, Jesus, what do you need? I want to play my part well for, the, for your glory and for the good of other people. We look to Jesus who paid the ultimate price. And when that happens, the cost and the price and all of that stuff, like it's there in your life and in my life. We're not gonna minimize that at the same time. It puts some perspective on it and we're like, ah, I can move forward now. And so I wanna give us a moment. The worship team's gonna come back up. Would you take a moment? I'm trusting that God's spirit is working right here and right now. And so there's probably something that's come to mind. And where do you just, in the silence, where you, as you sit on the chair there right now, like what is it you need to bring before the Lord and to confess? And then I wanna remind you and call you to celebrate the reality of what Jesus has done, that he emptied himself for you, for the Father's glory and for your joy. He emptied himself. And then a very practical level, what is the Lord asking you to commit to? Where do you need to plug in? Where do you need to get involved? Where do you need a renewed sort of spirit and perspective, even in the ways that you're currently serving and engaged? So we'll give you just a moment and then I'll call us back in a couple of moments and give instruction on how the rest of the service is going to continue. But let me, let me pray and then give you this time. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus on this amazing, ultimate, costly rescue mission. And Jesus, we thank you that you went through with it. May we be reminded of what we have in you, that we, because of Jesus, of your sacrifice, we can count others more important than ourselves, that we can be humble because of the strength that you provide as we look to you and how you emptied yourself. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would be at work now. Lead us into this confession, this repentance, and then apply afresh and anew the realities of the gospel that we might celebrate, that we might be encouraged in who we are in you. And so Spirit, just trusting that you will lead and guide. And so hear the prayers of your people now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.